You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing The Incredible Shrinking Woman, released January 30th, 1981. It was written by Jane Wagner. It's adapted from Richard Matheson's novel, The Shrinking Man, directed by Joel Schumacher and released by Universal Pictures. The novel was about a dude that was shrinking? Yes. The day before Incredible Shrinking Woman came out, Justin Timberlake was born. Oh, J. Tims. I love me some J. Tims. I'm not familiar enough with his work. <laughs> <laughs> in 1956, Richard Matheson's novel, The Shrinking Man, was published. It was adapted first the following year for 1957's The Incredible Shrinking Man, and later the novel was retitled to match the film. So the, the book became called The Incredible Shrinking Man. The, huh. the original release didn't have That's the word funny. incredible. Between that film and this one, there has only been one short remake of the story, and we've already watched it for this podcast. Do you remember when we reviewed that adaptation? The adaptation of the book or this movie? The Incredible Shrinking Man. No. See the Incredible Shrinking Man. Watch him before your very eyes as he grows smaller and smaller and uh, smaller. Oh, uh, is that the apple? <laughs> yeah, that's for the apple. <laughs> In the late 70s, on the heels of writing a pair of Mel Brooks films and a Pink Panther sequel, screenwriter Ron Clark wrote a remake of the 1957 film. Universal approached Jack Nicholson and Chevy Chase to star before Lily Tomlin signed with the studio to executive produce and star. The script was then rewritten by Tomlin's regular collaborator and eventual wife, Jane Wagner, with John Landis attached to direct. That sounds like a good lineup. Yeah. The film stopped down as the budget ballooned from 10 to $30 million, and despite Landis's previous film, Blues Brothers, handily paying for itself, they decided they weren't going to move forward with Landis on this project. I would have much preferred to... I mean, not that I dislike this movie strongly. I'm just saying I think that a Landis $30 million budget version of this would have yeah. been fantastic. The bigger problem was that Tomlin and her wife Wagner had worked on a previous movie um, that we'll talk about later that did not do well um, uh. on the way to this and so Universal got uh, a little spooked that this movie was going to do poorly and they took a break. They stopped down and in the downtime Landis left to start work on American Werewolf in London for later this year and Joel Schumacher was attached for his directorial debut. It seems so, it seems so strange for like the reversal of Landis doing so, so many great comedies and then going into a horror and then yeah. Joel Schumacher doing so many great comedies with like, I mean, well, not that I would consider this a great comedy, but DC cab, which he did after this is a very good comedy. Right. Um, and then he went into horror with lost boys. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Maybe he was just taking a cue from Landis. Lawrence Pressman, who we just had as Dick in 9 to 5, was briefly attached as Mr. Kramer, but was ultimately replaced with Charles Grodin. The film was pushed to January to give the film time to finish their visual effects, but also to benefit from the release of 9 to 5, which tested extremely well and had a lot of good buzz going for it. 
As a result, all the Christmas decorations in the film seem very out of place. The opening titles appear as a rainbow of colors in digital clock interface font. We hear a man pitching a spray cheese product called Cheese Tease. The first woman <laughs> does not like it and is dismissed from the live recording. I don't like it. I don't like it. If you see Higgins, tell him never mind about sending the rats. I tried one of them and I just don't like them. See, I, I'm already mad at this film. <laughs> yeah. Let me. So, uh, I. On, on my second like kind of note taking of this film after uh, after having watched it, I I realized how much this opening doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. The, this this whole movie has been is about though especially the opening part is about the product placement product placement and people really being obsessed with products and wanting the newest greatest product. So this guy pitching cheese, people should have been like in love with it. Like, yeah, it, sh- it should have been this thing that everyone loves and everyone like. Or or if they didn't love it. They would say something like, "Oh, well, I get this other cheese in a can that's much better." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it just starts off with a very anti-consumer message or feeling, like, like right. yeah, people aren't going to like cheese in a can because that's a when gross it should idea. be building that exact opposite. Like, it should yeah. be it should be showing that everybody wants everything and 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 we're piling products on top of products. Here. Right. Mm-hmm. We open picture and we're in a supermarket parking lot where the pitch man is grabbing shoppers on their way into the store to get their live reactions to this cheese. A mother-daughter volunteer team disappoint the man again. What we'd like you to do is look in the camera and say, mmm, tastes like real cheddar cheese. You don't think it does? You really don't? It doesn't? Well, what does it taste like? Shit. We see Pat Kramer, mother of two, with her kids, a housekeeper, and three overflowing shopping carts exiting the store, and her dog. Yeah, and and there's is there only her two kids? I thought there were I thought there were like several kids. There's only two children. She only has two kids, and she <laughs> okay. had to hire another adult to help her go to the store to get groceries. And she bought three carts full of groceries. <laughs> like, are the, is is the coronavirus happening in 1981? Why are they packing up for Y2K? Oh, again, I, I feel like this that is in line with the, the consumerism message. Sure. Um, the host harangues her into trying this cheese on her way out, but since she was chewing gum before he sprayed the cheese in her mouth, she can't judge the taste fairly. The man gives her a free can to try at home and announces that it has a shelf life of 12 years. Ugh. I mean, maybe... Maybe it does make sense that not everybody is on board with all of these products because maybe she is in a unique position to be trying more than the average consumer. Maybe. We cut to the back of Pat's car on the drive home and she has so many grocery bags that they couldn't even close the hatch of her station wagon. It's just like tied around the back. But then we get the reverse angle looking at Pat and her housekeeper Concepcion in the front seat and we can see that the hatch is closed from here. And I was very unclear as to what Pat Creamer does for a living at first, because on her drive home, everyone's trying to pitch her products. And I thought, and I was yeah. thinking, like, is she like a radio show, or does she have a show where she tests products, and everyone's trying to pitch her to get her in on the newest things, especially when she gets home and Judith is trying to to pitch her on this whole product line. I was like. It, does she review things professionally? What is her No, her she, she job? doesn't have a job. She she's is, a housewife. She's a housewife. That's she yeah. literally she has no job. Yeah. There's no ex- 
explanation for why all these people are pitching stuff to her all the time. I mean, her husband's in advertising, but it's not like he yeah he's he not, gets he, he gets paid by the people who make products to advertise them. He doesn't advertise random products that yeah. people pitch him. <laughs> yeah, the dog farts in the car on the way home, which would matter less if the hatch was open. But one of the kids rifles through the groceries for an air freshening spray and instead inexplicably finds a can of green spray paint. In his haste, the kid breaks the top off of the can and the car is very quickly filled with this carcinogenic paint fumes. Pat rolls down her driver's side window, which again shouldn't be necessary if the back of the car is open. And she's trying to let the fumes out, but they happen to be driving past a car pumping exhaust out. And she's choking on the exhaust from this car at the same time as she's choking on the green paint fumes. As she pulls into her neighborhood, Tasty Meadows, all of Pat's neighbors are shouting advertisement pitches at her as if she were on the Truman Show or something. As they pull into the driveway, her son Jeffrey kicks a full bag of oranges out of the back of the car into the street. Pat carries the groceries into the home and past the kitchen window of her neighbor, another Lily Tomlin. This is her neighbor Judith, who apparently coincidentally is an exact duplicate of Pat. Like I thought, okay, these are siblings who bought both halves of a duplex or something. Mm -hmm. Nope, just another woman who looks exactly like her for no reason. Well, and what's even weirder is that Judith Beasley is one of Lily Tomlin's stock characters. Right. Um, uh, and what what made it even weirder for me is that I have a cousin named Judith Beamsley. <laughs> and I was like, this is too close. Uh, it's confusing me. But yeah, th- she plays a, a number of her own stock characters in this film. And uh, I think it was just her and Jane's way of recycling her act into the film as like references to mm-hmm. what she does. So when you say stock characters, you mean from stand-up? From uh, stand-up performances or from Laugh-In. Specifically, oh, okay. the Judith Beamsley character is from a stand-up show that she did. And Ernestine, the phone operator, is a character that she did on Laugh-In. Mm. And so is Edith Ann, which is like a child character that she does. Yeah. Which, um, that was a scene that was in the movie that got cut. So okay. it's not in the movie, but it's in the TV version of the movie. Gotcha. Judith follows them into the kitchen with a briefcase full of this movie's surrogate Avon products. Avon. Pat's son, Jeff, demands she do little bar of soap for his friends, and she refuses, eventually kicking all the neighborhood kids out of the house. Concepcion, the housekeeper, babysitter type person, yeah. like, I, I don't know why this lady's necessary. They only have two kids, and she's she doesn't have a job. To be fair, this woman is terribly overtaxed this yeah. entire movie, so I think she is necessary. She's not good at no. what she does, so she's not helpful, but, you know, somebody is necessary. <laughs> yeah, but Concepcion has sat down to watch telenovelas instead of unpacking the groceries, and Judith sits down at the kitchen counter and pitches her whole box of products to Pat until Jeff comes back complaining about a problem with the hose. Pat asks Concepcion to fix the hose with her limited Spanish-speaking ability and says, Concepcion, agua, pan con agua, por favor. Which you pointed out (laughs) translates roughly to bread with water, please. (laughs) The kid blasts both of them with the garden hose before backing out the door. And Pat and Concepcion team up to put everything away in the kitchen before her husband Vance gets home. We cut to a pair of harmless pranks from Jeff that don't really pay off later. He tries to surprise Pat in the shower with a toy spider on a string and later he peeks through a window wearing a Creature from the Black Lagoon costume. Can you guys recall the last time we had a character impersonate the Creature from the Black Lagoon? Uh, was it Fade to Black? It was Fade to Black, Eric Binford. Nice. 
Pat prepares the dinner table for her husband and has to open the door for him because he's completely incapable. It seems like he's getting home from a trip because he surprises the kids with gifts, which they immediately dismiss as airport presents. Well, I would say one, one of the things that's interesting about this movie is the Edward Scissorhands-like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like wardrobe, set design. Yeah. E- everything is these pastel colors, including everyone's suits and like dresses. Like like he, he wears a suit to work, but it's like a bright peach, you know, or something like that, you know? It, and the Avon calling and all the looky-loo neighbors and everything. There's so many connections. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, Edward Scissorhands would come much later. But it seems like it's like very similar in style. I would be surprised if Burton was not in a lot of ways inspired by this film. Sure. Jeff is now wearing Groucho glasses and mustache and will have a different bizarre costume change every time we see this kid. Vance also gifts the kids one piece each of a new product they're thinking about calling Explodigum and then a silk scarf for Pat. This is our second Lily Tomlin movie in which a husband gifts a woman a scarf (laughs) after 9 to 5 last month, which actually shot after this movie, but because Uh. of the visual effects in this film, ended up coming out before this. Airport presence. (laughs) The kids' mouths are overflowing with green foam from this shitty gum, and she rushes them off to bed without so much as wiping the ring of sticky green mess around their mouths. They make her sing a jingle from a soap commercial that they tried to get her to do earlier called Little Bar of Soap. Oh, I wish I was a little bar of soap. Bar of soap. Oh, I wish I was a little bar of soap. Bar Don't throw. I go slippy, slappy, slimy over everybody's hiney. Oh, I wish I was a little bar of soap. Sit bar down, what are you doing? Get in the bed, let's go. Come on, under the covers. Back in their bedroom, a bit of perfume that Vance brought straight from the factory is spilled on Pat's shirt and she moves to clean it in the sink. She complains about the fumes, and he asks what they should call it. The kids sneak up on the bedroom door to listen to their parents have sex, apparently. <laughs> yeah. they're weird kids. Well, yeah. that's And that's what I thought. I was like, are they really trying to like hear what their parents are doing? And then it occurred to me that maybe they were just trying to make sure that nope, their parents they make it pretty clear were what they're asleep, waiting for. No. But then they get mm-hmm. all giggly. Like, oh, yeah. what is happening? Vance asks her to choose between two perfume names. Hypnotique and Arise, Pat instead suggests Sexpot, and Vance immediately approves. I like that he's like willing to take her suggestions and brings them to the company the next day. It's like watching an episode of Bewitched. Right. Uh, she follows up the name with a dumber suggestion that you could sell it in pots instead of bottles. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work out so well. But the kids are still waiting outside the door, and now Jeff says, What are they doing again? So they're literally waiting to hear their parents have sex which is weird. In the bedroom, we see them move to the bed and the camera tracks across the room to the blouse that they spilled perfume on as it smokes on the counter, which introduces a problem I'll have with the plot later. Yeah. We cut to a board meeting where the name Sexpot is being pitched to Dan Beam, the head of the company, played by Ned Beatty. Sexpot. Hmm. Makes you think of sex and dope. I think it says it all. Vance is suddenly called out of the meeting by a phone call from Pat. She's literally interrupting his pitch to the head of the company to ask where her blouse from yesterday went. When he tries to convey the importance of the meeting she just pulled him out of, she decides to also mention that her fingernails look shorter today than they did yesterday, and he's weirdly patient with her nonsense. (laughs) How would you... But, like, fingernails are a bad, like, benchmark, if you ask me. Yeah. Because, like... 
you cut your fingernails. Like yeah. they're not they're not a constant. Yeah. So what size your fingernails are should not be something you compare things to. And it's also not yeah. something you would bring up to your husband if you're not sure that your fingernail got shorter. I, I also like I don't think I would even notice like I notice when they get too long but I don't know if I would ever notice that oh man my fingernails were gone short. Yeah. what if they were gone Richard then I wouldn't be able to pick apart things <laughs> I couldn't open cans I know I, I think I still open cans but I wouldn't be able to separate slices of bread <laughs> I also don't know why this blouse is so important like was she gonna wear it two days in a row could this not have waited for him to get home tonight it was the, in a stain. The meeting is over by the time he gets off the phone, but Mr. Beam tells him he likes the name Sexpot. He teases Vance with a promotion and suggests that he might have a bigger office if he can come up with a name for this new glue account that they just landed. We get a bit of voiceover suddenly for the next scene. I'm not sure why this was necessary. And that night, the Kramers are hosting a monthly block meeting. Tomlin's Judith character calls out a neighbor for not picking up after her dog. It's played like Judith is a stickler, but honestly, fuck people who don't pick up after their dogs. <laughs> I don't give a shit if it was raining like this lady claims. Well, then she continues to list off like several other dates where right. she was yeah. not picking it up. So, so she's just full of shit. Vance enters and everybody steps away from Judith's lecture to say hello. In the commotion, a vase of flowers is dropped and broken, but Vance tells them all not to worry and fishes out the new glue that he's hawking. And the jingle plays over him fixing it. You broke a vase. Don't wait for days. Here's what to do. Everyone applauds a grown man gluing an ugly vase back together. He pitches them on Galaxy Glue as a name, and they all love it. It seems like Pat's not sold on it, and I thought she was going to come up with a better name again, but they go with Galaxy yeah. Glue. Well, I, I thought that the, they were going to call it Good as New. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, that's actually kind of a cute name. Good as glue. Ah, that's true of all glue. But like in the commercial, it really bothers me how badly he glues the thing back together because it's like not aligned yeah. when, when <laughs> it's glued back together. But then we get one of these wacky 80s scenes where everything goes obnoxiously wrong at the same time. Uh. Ingredients include like eight extra characters in the form of Concepcion's carpool ringing the doorbell for her ride home obnoxious children and dogs well and, and then conception screaming for like a solid two yes. minutes yeah I, I i i had to mute it i just like i can't i can't listen to this yeah it was like that bird in the visitor you had just had to stop or like the alarm clock in witch's brew it was one of those oh, i gotta God, i gotta turn this down um but it turns out pat still has some galaxy glue on her hands despite never having used the product and while she's fishing some clothes out of the dryer for her daughter, she becomes stuck to everything. The clothes, her kids, the dog, Concepcion, Vance, all the neighbor guests, everyone from the carpool. And she's just screaming full volume for this whole sequence. Vance looks like... He has her in a headlock, kind of, because his arm is, like, wrapped around her neck while she's screaming. And we just cut to breakfast the next morning. That's all over. Pat is fixing breakfast for everyone when her bracelet falls off into Vance's cereal. And the straps from her apron keep falling off of her shoulders. Vance leaves for work, but when he kisses her goodbye, she mentions their height difference. They see a doctor to learn that she has shrunk two inches in the past week. We see Judith's perspective of Pat arriving home 
and where she could usually see her face, she's now only seeing the top of Pat's head. At various doctor's appointments, we confirm that she is shrinking, and she is sent to the Kleinman Institute for the Study of Unexplained Phenomenon. Klein being the German word for small, so small man institute. This whole thing reminds me a little bit. Did you ever read the um, uh, the Twits? It was a Roald Dahl book. I don't know if I did. I liked that one. But there's a section in there where it's basically like they're being like they're gaslighting them where they they they're doing things to make them think they're shrinking so like oh, okay you know like putting like little um you know pieces of wood on the bottom of the cane like every day is to make them think that they're getting it's smaller getting and smaller yeah, and i'm like it just like it'd be it's just a funny idea of a trick to play on somebody to just keep replacing things in their household so they feel like they're shrinking that'd be a fun long long con prank to play on somebody uh, the music at this institute, though, is pretty awesome. It's playing this weird funky techno beat. And we see information being presented on screen in the same fonts and colors as the opening credits, while the scientists at the institute are collecting all of her information. In voiceover again, she talks us through the battery of tests that she underwent under the watchful eye of Dr. Nortz, played by Henry Gibson. After all the tests, they ask her three final questions. Are you anemic? After all those tests, you don't know if she's anemic? Sweetheart, please, please. Have you had a recent flu shot? I did have a flu shot about two months ago. Do you drink tap water? Of course I drink tap water. What are you trying to say to me, doctor? Please tell me what you mean. It turns out that those three affirmative answers, mixed with 20 different experimental products that her husband has tested on her have caused this this problem this shrinking yeah well i mean it's not just the things that he's brought home it's also like that that fake avon stuff whatever it is oh really that was included in the ingredients yeah i think that they i think it's just all of the the processed products that she she consumes which is in a weird way exactly the plot of our previous film scanners where a man with access to untested early market products tests them on his wife and causes severe, seemingly irreparable side effects. To top off the comparison, Dr. North's assistant here is named Dr. Ruth, <laughs> which is the same name as the man who tested stuff on his wife in scanners. Dr. Ruth, by the way, is played by Elizabeth Wilson, who we just had as Roz in 9 to 5. Dr. Ruth, also the name of a world-famous sex therapist, who was obviously alive at the time, but not such a big name that they would have avoided using it in two movies hitting theaters in the same month. <laughs> Her radio show had started in 1980. I'm not sure when in the year, but these movies were probably already in the can before Dr. Ruth was <laughs> yeah. a well-known name. Fascinating life story, though. Her father was taken away by Nazis a week after Kristallnacht when she was a child, and she was shuttled off to Switzerland and eventually emigrated to Palestine, where she was trained as a sniper... <gasps> and wounded by an exploding shell before moving to America. Also, as of this recording, she's still alive and kicking. Really? Yeah, but back to the movie. <laughs> the problem I have now that I hinted at before is that this blouse that was presumably shrunk to invisibility wasn't anemic. It didn't drink tap water or get a flu shot. Yeah. The only product it ever came in contact with was sex pot perfume, not to mention the fact that Nort's List's galaxy glue as one of the active ingredients of her condition and she was already shrinking before vance even brought that home hmm. 
I get that they didn't want the movie to be about recalling all these products or about a bunch of other people shrinking also, but it seems clear that Sexbot by itself was enough to shrink a person, let alone inanimate objects. Yeah, it, they should never have shown that blouse like misting yeah. in the in the in the sink. It should have always been a a uncertainty as to all the products that she tried that day of what caused it. Yeah. I mean, presumably anything that was on the surface of her skin might also be on that blouse and you wash it in tap water, you know, like that still wouldn't have included galaxy glue because he hadn't even been handed the tube of galaxy glue yet. That's fair. I'm just saying that all the other products. But sure. Everything else. Maybe, maybe. Well, I mean, because like I was thinking like, you know, I kept wondering what was going to be the catalyst. So it's like, oh, it's going to be this squeezy cheese. Oh, no, it's going to be this canister of gas that got released into the car. You know, it's they they kept having her get exposed to things. Yeah, and, and it, it turns out really that that's clear. all on purpose because they wanted to be it to be a bunch of different things that caused it together because otherwise more people would be shrinking. Right, but it doesn't then make sense then for the blouse. Right. to shrink on its own. But it's it's kind of a smilex situation where you you have to have multiple ingredients to actually be shrinking. The Kleinman people send her home and they insist that they will develop an antidote on their own. As the Kramers leave the building, we see a team of scientists carrying a screaming person in a cardboard box labeled Danger up the steps to the Institute. (laughs) This was uh, one of the first solid laughs of the movie. Yes. (laughs) In the car at the curb, Vance tells her, Honey, as long as you have on this, this ring, nothing's changed between us. Of course, her ring falls off immediately in the car, and they drive away without even picking it up. Like, I was like, it's just going to be rolling around in the bottom. (laughs) Like, pick it up at least. Dan Beam meets with Vance at the Kramer home and cautions against making any public allegations against their clientele. It's what about the public? I mean, couldn't the label at least say, caution, this product might be hazardous to to, to, to your size? Mr. Beam insists that they can go public with everything as soon as the antidote is available. They are free to discuss her shrinking, they just can't name the cause. A news anchor spells out the mission statement of the script, surprisingly blatantly. Perhaps the petite Pat Kramer is a metaphor for the modern woman. It is no secret that the role of the modern housewife has become increasingly less significant. We cut to Judith shopping with Pat in her cart like a child. Judith reads her the ingredients of Mike's Macho Meal, which seems to be composed largely of mutilated genitals for some reason. Like, I don't know what this product is supposed to be, but it's made from fortified food flavoring, eco booster, synthetic spermatozoa, testosterone, inert sugar syrup, tumescent tissue of bull scrotum. For some reason, Judith did not expect Looky Lose and eventually has to run out of the store with Pat in a paper bag. On the way out of the shop, though, The manager assumes that she's shoplifting and demands to see in the bag before apologizing to Mrs. Kramer. I think if this were a better movie, that The Incredible Shrinking Woman and Edward Scissorhands would make a very solid double feature. (laughs) Outside, we see an agent that was dispatched by Dr. Nortz to keep an eye on Pat. That night, we see Pat get lost in the bed sheets and fall off the bed. Judith tries to coach her to drive a car despite not seeing over the dash i don't know why this is necessary yeah yeah i i don't know why she's so insistent on doing tasks right 
Well, I mean, I think it makes sense, especially if we're talking about the metaphor of the, the housewife not, not becoming driving. less important. That- I, I mean, I think what she's doing is trying to maintain her independence and, and self-worth by being able to keep, you know, caring and providing for her family. Yeah. Well, I guess it, in order for it to be make sense and be a comedy film, she needs to not be able to see over the dash. But yeah. logistically speaking, she would be sitting on a bunch of phone books doing that driving. Yeah, I guess. And she'd have some, like, short round, like, stuff tied to her feet. Yeah. When Pat heads to the kids' room to tuck them in, Concepcion already has it taken care of. Now, Jeff has a faucet glued to his head. When Pat opts not to do a little bar of soap, they ask Concepcion to do it. And she does it in Spanish. But she seems okay with this. Like, she closes the door and she's smiling and laughing about it. She doesn't feel like she's being usurped as a mother. Yeah. She's just uh, amused that the words are in Spanish and that her kids know the words. Which doesn't seem to be in fitting with the film. Like, I feel like she should be hurt in this moment. Yeah, I thought so, too. I I felt like that would have made sense for her to be a little disappointed that she is being replaced in this this, Uh uh, household chore. Pat's cul-de-sac is now crowded with camera crews interviewing the neighbors about her one neighbor takes credit for bringing them to their first est seminar do you guys know what est is no it stands for Earhart seminars training so the phrase est seminar is a redundant acronym they were founded by werner Earhart in the early 70s and they ran through 84 do you remember the last time we mentioned est on the podcast nope eastern standard time funnily enough it's in a movie where someone literally says Eastern Standard Time. Uh, New Year's Evil? Yes. Uh, EST was mentioned between Transcendental Meditation and Zen on that the woman's uh, hints for making your life better. And then I went through Est. And finally, Zen. Oh, boy, that was some sort of spiritual trip. But it was just one of those, like, scammy, like, weekend retreats where they teach you how to be a better person but yeah eastern standard time <laughs> we see judith in pat's kitchen flipping through a stack of magazines with pat's face on them although i felt like all of these magazines failed to take advantage of the fact that this is an incredible shrinking woman like do something about scale right have her like sitting on a tiny chair or something huge with her but uh but no it's just close-ups of her face on magazines because they just had pictures of lily tomlin i guess yeah. right right Pat is struggling to strain spaghetti at the sink. The kids keep shooting Nerf guns at Pat while she's carrying a salad bowl through the kitchen. And she drops all of it on the floor. It's so mean. Like her children are just awful. Well, and the fact that nobody else is helping helping and telling these kids to stop being Her husband's in the room. Her housekeeper's in the room. Her best friend is in the room. And her kids are shooting at her with toys. And she's four feet tall trying to carry a two-foot-wide salad through the room. I mean, she does have a line about how she wants to do this herself. And she doesn't want anybody's help. But but she doesn't have to do everything herself all the time. Right. Doing it yourself doesn't mean your kids have the right to shoot you with (laughs) Nerf guns that are as tall as you. Yeah. Judith recommends that Pat tell her story on national television. And we cut to a secret laboratory where Tom Keller, as played by John Glover, is prompted to identify himself by a computer system. Voice code. Tom Keller, 234ZXE. Representing? Representing Genetic Engineering Affiliated, International Dynamic Chemicals Corporation, Experimental Science, 
Omni National Research. Verified. Which is basically just biocarbon amalgamate again. <laughs> yeah, including the Keller. Yeah. Oh, it is Keller again. Wait, it wasn't Keller, was it? Wasn't it? Br- Braden Keller, it was, right? Yeah, hold on. I'm, 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 Tom wait. Keller in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Keller was definitely from... It was Braden Keller? Yeah. So we have Dr. Ruth and Keller facing off again. Yeah. That's crazy. These are the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great double feature. We cut to Pat's appearance on the Mike Douglas show, which starts with a song from the host. Maybe this was a regular part of the show. I never saw it. Uh, it's a cover of Kitty Callan's 1954 hit, Little Things Mean a Lot. Mr. Beam tries to talk Vance into preventing Pat from calling out their clients during the interview, but Vance doesn't make any promises. What if these products are dangerous? Dangerous? I'll tell you what's dangerous. If your wife goes out there and creates a crisis in confidence in American consumerism, that's dangerous. Now, maybe some of our products do attack a few blood cells, but you're talking about a television show where millions of people, millions of people are tuning in. Now, do you want to look in there and tell them they can't trust American products? You know what they want? They want hope. Of course, there's no payoff to this moment, because when she eventually gets on the show, Pat isn't given much room to say anything. She walks out on stage carrying a wrapped gift but it turns out to just be a stool so that she can get into the guest's chair. I don't know why it had to look like a present, though. Like, it could have still been a gift after she climbed off of it. Well, and why didn't they have, like, some kind of an assistant or some kind of an assist for her to get up there? Yeah, there should have been a stool. Think about it. I think this this was a planned, you know... Moment. ...gag for the show to bring out something that they presume is a gift for the host... But it's yeah. it's not. So it was a joke that they scripted. Of course it was. It's like uh, what Schiavelli in uh, Man in the Moon calls a happening or something like that. What does he call it when when they when they faked the fight on Fridays, and uh, and he's like, "You've all been a part of a happening or something like that." And then Andy Kaufman tries to pretend, "No, this was a real fight." I don't know what he's talking about. Douglas introduces. Pat's fan club who applaud enthusiastically but unfortunately never come back I was hoping she would rely on these people to like save her at some point later in the story yeah he asks what it's like and she admits that it's been something of a nightmare well Mike I'll tell you um it has mostly been a nightmare but some good things have happened like getting to come on your show here I mean nobody cared what I had to say when I was my normal height for instance we'll be right back after these messages When they come back, he asks why she's shrinking, and Vance gives her a nod of, I I thought, permission to admit the cause, but instead she lies that the cause has not been determined. Meanwhile, Mr. Beam is meeting with a board of shadowy figures. He also invites Doctors Nortz and Ruth to the conversation with the Organization of World Management, who lay out their plan. Instead of finding an antidote, they plan to shrink everyone who isn't them, and then contaminate the water supply so that the, literally everyone except for the people in this room are shrunken. Mr. Beam is a little uneasy with the plan and refuses to cooperate unless they can guarantee Mrs. Kramer's safety. Though he does mistakenly call her Pam again here because there's a running gag that Mr. Beam cannot remember Vance's wife's name. <laughs> they ask him for ideas on how to acquire her blood to create a formula to shrink everyone. 
and we cut to the Kramer household on Christmas. We pan down a Christmas tree to a pile of presents, and then we see Pat wandering around the nativity scene. (laughs) They gift her a dollhouse to live in, and then we cut to later in the dollhouse where she's composing her memoirs on a tape deck. I'm assuming this is the tape that we've been listening to as her voiceover throughout the film. Her son lures her out of the dollhouse so that his friends can take pictures of the tiny woman. She tries to lecture the kids, but nobody can hear her. And suddenly, a tiny robot toy called Roger the Robot, with, for some reason, the same voice as the computer at the Organization for World Management, starts to sexually assault her. Hi! I'm Roger the Robot! Let's blast off together! The toy pushes her into the kid's closet where a host of other toys begin speaking in the same creepy robot voice. A rabbit, an elephant, a big doll named Betsy Wetsy. This is a horrifying scene, by the way. Yes, it's it's a nightmare for sure. Like, a, be, being, like, like not, not consumed by toys, but just having them so many piled on top of you. It reminds and, me of, like, the scary scenes from the first Toy Story movie when they're trying to freak uh, Sid. Sid out. Yeah. Yeah. But Betsy Wetsy is one of those dolls that pees herself, and it pees right in Pat's face. Vance comes home with Dan Beam and the president of Paxton Toys, who turns out to be Mr. Keller from the Secret Society. They laugh as Pat struggles to escape a glove and then knocks herself unconscious. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. She she wanders out with a glove over her head, and she's trying to get out of it, and then crashes into the wall and falls over. And they're just like, ah, oh, look at her. Like it's, like, it's hilarious that she's unconscious now. Over dinner, Pat is chugging champagne out of a thimble. Vance keeps offering to refill her glass by dumping it all over her, but she's so wasted that she thinks this is hilarious. I feel like this scene should have started with her sober, and then we should have worked into her being drunk, because yeah. it's weird that she's drunk at the start of the scene. It turns out Paxton Toys wants to make a small doll of her, and they're offering her a private plane to go to a design center to make clothes for the doll. More champagne. You did it again! Look, he did it again! The men leave, and Pat opens a fortune cookie that reads, You will meet a tall stranger. Pat tells him that she's not interested in a doll, and he slips her a gift before heading to bed. Disgustingly, the gift is a doll-sized lingerie outfit, implying he wants to murder her with his penis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm also trying to imagine who this uh, is originally intended for. Like, who's buying this Barbie lingerie, lingerie yeah. for their children it's to weird. play with? <laughs> it's custom made. We see Mr. Beam and Mr. Keller driving away, and Beam says, well, It looks like we switched to plan B. Don't worry, Tom. <laughs> Old dad's in charge. I don't even know what the point of the scene is. It's like, is the joke that he's irresponsible after he just said, don't worry, Dan's in charge. But it seems like he's doing this on purpose because he doesn't correct the car at all after it hits the first one. Like he just drives along a whole line of like seven cars. (laughs) Pat enters the bedroom and climbs the covers to get into bed with her husband. But just as she reaches him, he rolls over and the pillow inflates, tossing her off the bed onto a toy skateboard that rolls down the hall and crashes into her dollhouse. She moves inside it, and instead spends the night with Stan, the Ken doll of her dollhouse, on the toy couch. When she wakes up the next morning, she only comes up to his chest. We see Pat struggling to cook bacon on a hot plate on the counter. She tells Vance that she doesn't want a doll, 
and we get another chaos moment. Concepcion's music is super loud, the phone is ringing, and bacon is burning. Pat tries to explain to Vance why she refused the doll while standing on a literal soapbox. Pat, when you're ready to come down off that soapbox, give me a call. After they leave, Pat accidentally falls into the sink and down the drain into the garbage disposal for the most disturbing scene of the film. Yeah. Concepcion doesn't know that she's down there and she's burying her in sloppy leftovers that she's scraping off of plates and we get, first we see the shot of them getting dumped into the drain and then we see inside the garbage disposal as like eggs and toast and crap are being dumped all over Lily Tomlin and cigarettes. Concepcion nearly flips the switch for the disposal when the man following Pat rings the doorbell. He hands Concepcion a tiny basket of flowers and mumbles at her in Spanish for a while before ducking back outside. Pat escapes the drain, but is captured while Concepcion is distracted at the door. She flips the disposal switch before she notices a shoe in the sink and assumes the unthinkable, that she has just blended the woman that she works for here. We cut to news anchors eulogizing the character, and then to Pat's funeral, where Pat's shoe is being buried in a matchbox in their backyard. Pat wakes up in a lab full of monkeys and apes. She's being kept in a hamster cage, but the closest animal is an ape named Sydney, who apparently taught itself sign language in three weeks and is a chess grandmaster. Dr. Ruth threatens to sedate Pat if she can't calm down in her cage. Sydney's handler is a new character named Rob, played by Mark Blankfield, who kind of looks like Garrett Graham from Used Cars. Yeah, I thought that same thing. Yeah. Uh, Rob is trying to figure out why Sydney is upset, but clearly Sydney feels bad for Pat. It feels like they're only holding on to her until they can make a blood sample, so I'm not sure why that hasn't already happened. Like, that should have happened before she even woke up from this sedative. I mean, maybe you need to do it over time. She's tiny. If you need enough blood, you gotta, like, gradually oh, extract it. That reminds me of something else that we covered. Oh, never mind. That's not something that we covered. That was on Mandalorian, where they were using grogu's blood but they needed more of it because he's tiny and he takes a while to regenerate it is this this new season yes i haven't seen that well then you don't know who grogu is <laughs> she nope. knows who grogu is who's grogu okay i knew he had a name <laughs> yeah i just didn't know what the name was now you know now grogu. i know the more you know that's a terrible name. Yeah. Why did, they pick, why did they do that? Like, everybody loves this character. Why'd you give him such a dumb name? I, there's not a good name in Star Wars. Grogu. But, like, like he couldn't make it sound more stupid. Yeah. They tried. Grogu. Dumb. It's like Yoda. That night, Pat convinces Sidney the ape to steal the keys from Rob. Pat pleads with Rob to help her. But when she explains who she is, he tells her that he was told that she would say that, and that in reality, she is a clone of Pat Kramer and not the woman who famously died on television. But it reminds me of the movie Multiplicity, where just because you clone a person doesn't mean they get all the memories. <laughs> yeah. Well. But in that film, they were trying to give the person all the memories. They get all the memories in living with yourself. What is living with yourself? That's the Paul Rudd one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was definitely and had, based on multiplicity. Yeah. We never finished then, that show, no, did we? We watched like that show was two so or three good. episodes. I don't know why we did 
finish uh, it. We're going to go back to it. All right, hold on. <laughs> we're going to pause and finish the first season of Living With Yourself. I was going to say, I think Calvin keeps his memories in uh, Scientific Progress Goes Boink. I don't know that one either. <laughs> what is that? That's a, that's a, that's a Calvin and Hobbes uh, arc okay. called Scientific Progress Goes Boink where he clones himself. <laughs> is that canon? Did he actually clone himself? No, it's just one of his little oh. inventions. I wanted that to be the one thing that wasn't his imagination. <laughs> Before Rob leaves, he knocks a folder of paperwork to the floor, and Pat asks Sydney to grab it for her. She reads the whole plan, and it turns out that the Organization for World Management is planning to shrink everyone. She spends all night reading it, even though it's only 10 pages long. These people were so big, the only way they could become bigger was by making all of us smaller. Pat mounts a plan of escape. She uses a pencil to shove her cage along the desk toward a phone to call her husband, but when she accidentally steers her cage over the edge of the desk, she almost falls before Sydney can catch her. Rob enters, and she proves who she is by showing him the top-secret document. Rob assumes this is another trick until he reads the page. They really are planning to shrink the world! We cut to Vance getting yanked out of yet another board meeting, to answer another prank call from someone claiming to be his wife. He is shocked to learn that it's true, but the line is disconnected before he can get an address to find her. We see a switchboard operator apologizing for the interruption, and this is our second Lily Tomlin, or I guess third Lily Tomlin character, Ernestine from Laugh-In. I'm so sorry, but you have been disconnected from the party to whom you were speaking, and you better lay off the buttons, Fester. An alarm goes off in the lab, and Rob leaves. A team of guards enter and pull Sydney's cage away from Pat's cage. Dr. Nortz reaches into her cage to collect the blood sample, and we cut to a TV interview with Vance and the kids, and for some reason Concepcion is on stage too. They tell the host about this new development, but it seems like nobody here believes Vance. Even the host doesn't believe what Vance has to say, that she's alive and that she's being held by the Organization for World Management. Back at the lab, Pat is now being kept in an even easier to escape upside down funnel. If she could push a whole metal cage across the desk, <laughs> she could for sure tip this thing over. Yeah. Rob sneaks back into the lab and tosses his keys to Sydney. On the TV show, Logan Carver, one of the shadowy figures from the Organization for World Management, is offered the opportunity to refute Vance's claim of abduction. But I feel like in the real world, nobody would have shown up on behalf of the company. They would have been like, we're not going to dignify this with a response. Right. Yeah, exactly. The man claims no involvement and blames Vance's imagination until he is shot in the face with one of Jeff's Nerf balls because apparently they let this kid bring a toy gun on stage of their TV show. Sydney grabs Pat and Rob grabs the secret document. A crowd of police race toward the lab and Rob tosses Sydney's banana peels all over the floor to slip up the security. This whole scene basically needed yakety sacks over it of them yeah. going in and out of the elevators. Um, but he, at first, Rob locks all the security guards in the lab because they slide past him into the room and he's able to close the door. And then we get this whole, yeah, I, I have the note here. We get a whole Benny Hill sequence of the cops <laughs> and escapees trading places in elevators and hallways until all the captives escape why do they have so many elevators for this little lab i don't know there's three elevators to get to the basement that's not necessary. And, and, 
and one of them goes to a restaurant, which I guess yeah. would be their front. Well, I don't know if it even goes to the restaurant. Uh, I got the impression because they're riding on the top of the elevator oh, and they true. ride it the whole way up the shaft. And then uh, Sydney flips off the scientists through like the opening at the top of the elevator. But uh, they escape into the back room of this restaurant. Yeah. And I feel like they they got out of the elevator shaft, not through elevator doors. I, I mean, I guess I they must have they come out of the doors. I don't know how they got out of that elevator shaft. But in my mind, this is like a Stranger Things Season you know, three. Situ- situation where there's an entire Russian compound underneath your local mall. Yeah. Like, where else are you going to hide this place? Or or like Gremlins 2, where there's like a laboratory at the top floor. Uh, but they ride this elevator shaft all the way up, and then they escape into the back room of a restaurant. We cut to the shopping center where we started the film, and Sydney is chased up to the table outside the store where Judith Beasley is speaking into a microphone another table full of chemical products is knocked to the floor but pat makes her way to the microphone on the table everyone crowds around to hear pat's story of what happened and the fact that she's still alive and what the organization plans to do she never actually tells them about the organization's plan but she trusts rob to see that plan is made public and uh Vance somehow manages to get there just before she disappears out of sight because she's still actively shrinking as she sings I wish I was a little bar of soap one last time when she finishes the song she disappears and her final dress blows away in the wind and lands in a mix of spilled chemicals on the ground the score becomes a sadder version of the little bar of soap song but we zoom into the multicolored sludge on the floor and something's moving in this mess. There's Something's alive down there. At home, Vance and his family are for some reason watching the news coverage of her second death. Beam leans in to tell Vance that his wife's second funeral is getting the best ratings ever. And Vance obviously tells him to fuck off. Judith leads the neighborhood in a candlelight vigil starting at midnight. Big Ben and St. Paul's cathedrals are ringing their bells in remembrance as this memorial is being broadcast worldwide. We get no indication that Rob has passed on any information that this organization is planning on killing everyone on the planet. Suddenly, the cops show up, and impossibly, they make it all the way into the house with a regular-sized Pat Kramer without anybody noticing it. The family has a tearful reunion, and Vance drags her outside to show everyone that she's alive for a third time. Beam immediately offers himself up to the cops. Arrest this man. But you haven't done anything, trust me. <laughs> like, he just knows he's about to get arrested. Later that night, the kids show her that they still have Sydney in the house, and she agrees to keep this giant ape in their home because it saved her life. Vance tries to slip her wedding ring back on, but this time it's too small. And suddenly, Pat looks down to see that her shoes are bursting at the seams. We get another taste of the galaxy glue jingle over the beginning of the credits. And that's the end of our film. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. <laughs> yeah. I had I had really high hopes for this one. I had yeah. never seen it before. Like, I was really excited. I love Lily Tomlin. And it's Joel Schumacher. I thought it... Yeah. I, I actually, I like the effects of the whole, the size differential stuff. The the giant sets are really yeah, great. Yeah, but that's, that's the thing that's so great about this movie. And, you know, the, the things that I love the most about, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You know, like, those things are great. We just don't get enough of it, and it's and it's buried in this 
kind of convoluted story. Yeah. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a little, uh, unfocused and I feel like if they wanted to make it a metaphor about, uh, the shrinking role of the, uh, the housewife in American society that they could have hit that a little harder than they do. Yeah. Even though they spell out very specifically what they're doing early in the story, um, there's not really a lot of metaphors or symbolism for that point. Right. It just, it just seems like a straightforward, like people are trying to take over the world and we're going to prevent that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mad at myself that it took me this long to see a movie that has Lily Tomlin, Charles Grodin, and Henry Gibson in it. Yeah. Because I love yeah. all of them, especially if there well, were multiple Lily Tomlins in it. Like <laughs> I should have seen this already. Well, but Henry Gibson's role is pretty, pretty small. Right, but, but mean, he's playing but a very the, Henry Gibson character too. Yeah, and plus, obviously, that's like the laugh-in connection, right, with yes. Lily Tomlin. Um, but I'm surprised that that I hadn't seen this already. Um, but I understand it because there's not a lot to the story and there's not a lot to the plot. Um, I I don't like the poster. I don't like that the poster's focus is on the gorilla. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was uh, that's a mistake. But I, I like the look of the gorilla and everything. Our director here, obviously, was Joel Schumacher. Uh, this was his first feature film. We just lost him in June of last year. Uh, he followed this by directing, like you said, DC Cab, which is a significantly funnier movie. And then he did St. Elmo's Fire and Lost Boys, but is likely best known for his work on Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Um but he also directed Falling Down and 8mm. Like, he did some hardcore stuff on top of, like, oh, the yeah. more colorful stuff. Uh, novelist Richard Matheson wrote the novel I Am Legend, which has been adapted several times into The Last Man on Earth, Omega Man, and I Am Legend. He also wrote the novel that was adapted into Somewhere in Time, in which he cameoed last year. Uh, the screenplay for Jaws 3D, he also wrote that screenplay. Uh, not like... He wrote something that was adapted into it. He actually wrote the screenplay for that one. And uh, he also wrote 14 episodes of the original Twilight Zone, hmm. which were actually good episodes, too. Um, our writer here was Jane Wagner. She's the wife and longtime writer for lead actress Lily Tomlin. Prior to this, she had written and directed Moment by Moment, starring Tomlin and Travolta. And that was the one that did not perform well, uh, that made Universal especially concerned about spending $30 million on another Wagner Tomlin movie. Our cinematographer here was Bruce Logan. He has visual effects credits on 2001, Star Wars A New Hope, and Airplane, but here he's a cinematographer. He followed this one up immediately as the DP for Tron. Oh, okay. Yeah. Our editor was Jeff Gorson. Actually, we had multiple editors. Uh, Jeff Gorson coincidentally edited Somewhere in Time, uh, adapted from the same author's work last year and followed DP Bruce Logan to Tron next year. He also edited Flight of the Navigator, Big Top Pee Wee, Happy Gilmore, Beverly Hills Ninja, and a bunch of Adam Sandler stuff since then. That's like he great. just became Adam Sandler's regular editor. The other editor was Anthony Redman, who edited, among other things, The MacGyver Pilot, <laughs> also Highlander 2 The Quickening, Bad Lieutenant, and The Street Fighter movie. Lily Tomlin played Pat Kramer, Judith Beasley, Telephone Operator, which is the Ernestine character, and in the TV version, she plays Edith Ann, a child. Uh, We just had her in 9 to 5 last month, but we won't see her again until 2024 for our review of All of Me. That's how long it's going to be before we get another Lily Tomlin feature. 2024? Yeah. That's a big gap. 
yeah it's weird that uh i i i don't think this movie did especially well and so maybe uh she spent time focusing on stand-up and doing live performances for a while before she came back i'm so confused does all of me take place in the future or something no i'm 2024 meaning for us it will be 2024 1984 (laughs) is when the movie drops (laughs) sorry i was like i haven't seen that one does it happen in i heart huckabees doesn't exist Um, no, but all of me was in 1984, so we won't get okay. to that for four more years or Sorry, three more at this point. It's late. <laughs> Charles Grodin played Vance Kramer. We've covered his work in Catch 22, It's My Turn, and Seems Like Old Times, and we'll see him again later this year for Great Muppet Caper. Ned Beatty played Dan Beam. We had him last year for Hopscotch, but he's probably best known for his appearances in Deliverance Network or Toy Story 3. And we'll see him later this year as Otis in Superman 2. Henry Gibson was Dr. Eugene Nortz. We had him last year as the head Nazi in the Blues Brothers. He's also in a few Joe Dante titles, The Burbs, Gremlins 2, Inner Space. Uh, he's in a couple of MacGyver episodes. Uh, my favorite appearance from him is probably the bar scene in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. He also appeared on Laugh-In with Lily Tomlin. Elizabeth Wilson played Dr. Ruth Ruth. We just had her as Roz in 9 to 5. Holy merd. And she was Mrs. Braddock in The Graduate. She's also the woman pretending to be Fester's mom in the first Adams Family movie. Yeah, that's definitely how I recognized her. Yeah. Yeah. I think she looks more like that character here than she did in 9 to 5. Yeah. Uh, Mark Blankfield played Rob. This was his first feature film. He shows up as Blinken in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Did you say Abe Lincoln? No, I say Abe Lincoln. I said, hey, Lincoln. He also plays the lead in the direct-to-TV sequel to The Jerk, and he shows up in a couple Saved by the Bell episodes as an actor that Zach hires to pretend to be his dad to meet with Mr. Belding. Mm. Pamela Bellwood played Sandra Dyson. I don't remember who Sandra Dyson is. Sandra Dyson's one of the shadowy figures cancel. Oh, okay. Because I can't remember who comes in, but they go, they go gentlemen, Sandra. Sandra. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we had her in Serial and Hangar 18 last year. She's probably best known for her appearances in Disaster Films, Airport 77, and Two Minute Warning. John Glover played Tom Keller. We had him last year as an attorney in Melvin and Howard and as an ice salesman in The Mountain Men. He'll come back eventually as the antagonist of Gremlins 2 and Scrooged, among other things, and he is always wonderful. I just love John Glover <laughs> and everything. I, 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 I would say he's not the antagonist of Gremlins 2. No, that's true. He's actually kind of like a pleasant guy by the end of the movie. He, they, they play him up as an evil character, but by the end of the movie, he's on the right team. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I just love John Glover. He's, he's, he's a perfect smarm actor like when you oh, need yeah. like he's uh i just i just really, i was so happy when i saw him show up in this i was like oh my god is that john glover oh my god that's great well back back in the early days when i when i watched smallville um because he plays lex luther's father right and i was like oh my god if there was ever a perfect lex luther father figure yeah it's john glover well he's also in the uh in shazam as the father of the villain from that uh dc character yeah 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 
uh rick baker played sydney <laughs> rick baker was in the monkey suit that's great <laughs> uh he does the makeup effects for this movie he also did makeup effects on empire strikes back and altered states last year he has seven oscars for makeup starting the year the award became permanent for american werewolf in london this year then harry and the hendersons ed wood the nutty professor men in black the 2000 grinch and the 2011 wolfman all 100 percent deserved incredible makeup yeah, effects I'm surprised it's not more oscars yeah but uh that's what's i mean he really started in that industry at the exact right time mike douglas played mike douglas he obviously provides the singing voice of prince charming in the disney cinderella uh he plays the governor in gator and he hosted the mike douglas show for 21 years from 1961 to 1982 donovan scott played the neighbor that's one of the people that's telling uh pat about the amazing products that they have at their home i think he's the one barbecuing um, yeah and he played castor oil and popeye last month um, he's also leslie barbara in police academy martin ferrero played a guard i'm assuming a guard at the laboratory and he played yeah. the lawyer in jurassic park <laughs> the, the um, one that gets eaten the one that gets eaten yeah spoiler alert and he'll be back as <laughs> bon tempe in night riders later this year didn't we just see him in something because i feel yeah. like i was watching something with you i went through his whole yeah. imdb what, page sorry what is his name it. again martin ferrero but i was watching something with you and i sat down and i was like is that the lawyer from jurassic park and yeah. you said it was yeah what were we watching hold on i don't know is it what? Airbud three what was yeah, that we were Air definitely watching Airbud three yeah that was it no, give me it, was it a movie that was after Jurassic Park or before Jurassic no, Park? No, it was it was something that I thought was around the same time because he looked Oh, the we same. were watching High Spirits. Remember? Oh. Yeah. We, we, oh, yeah. Because yeah. I just we went over his IMDb and I didn't even see that in there. But you're yeah. right. It is High Spirits. But, uh, Which he's, is great. He, yeah. He's if wonderful, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking at uh, the credit for High Spirits. His name is Malcolm. Oh, is uh, it really? Yeah. That's yes. funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny because uh, Jurassic Park has a character named Malcolm. Anyway, Dick Wilson plays yeah. store manager. Uh, that's the guy who thought that one of the Lily Tomlins was shoplifting, but was actually carrying another Lily Tomlin. And that the actor that plays the store manager here was Mr. Whipple, the infamous mm -hmm. squeezer of Charmin from the Charmin commercials. Sally Kirkland played the cashier in this scene, and she was Helga, who was Eileen Brennan's sort of girlfriend in Private Benjamin last year. Terrence McGovern played the cheese demonstrator at the beginning of the film. He was the ADR director at the beginning of Mrs. Doubtfire oh. when Robin Williams is quitting his job because yeah, he doesn't he's doing, want... he's voicing that Tweety Bird-like character. But he, he's like, he's upset about smoking in the cartoon or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he quits the job. Uh, Dante D'Andre, that's a cool name, Dante D'Andre, played the Spanish soap opera actor. That's uh, what uh, Concepcion is watching on TV. And he played Dr. De Moraes in... Well, well, are we, we're not going to... Oh, sorry, hold on. Did I skip are somebody? Are we not going to cover Terrence McGovern? More more of Terrence McGovern? Oh, I didn't have other Terrence McGovern credits. What do you got? He, he, Launchpad McQuack. Is he the voice of Launchpad? <laughs> he's the voice, but voice of Launchpad, the original Launchpad. Yeah, obviously McQuack. he's not Beck Bennett. Yeah, uh, so he, uh, he was on DuckTales and Darkwing Duck. As oh my God, I can't believe I missed that. I, I guess I just didn't scroll down far enough. That's incredible. I'm so sorry, Mr. McGovern. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> so he's Launchpad and Darkwing? No, Jim Cummings yeah. is Darkwing. No, no, but he no, he played but, but he, he played, played Launchpad in both. On Darkwing, yeah. Okay. 
That's yeah, great. Yeah, they didn't they didn't change the voice actor for Darby Did Darby. did he do a voice in Rescue Rangers or anything or no? Or Tailspin? Uh I'm looking Transformers. I don't see it. he does he did a lot of Star Wars stuff. I missed the voice acting credits. That's terrible. He's How- mostly voice acting credits. He's got so many credits. Yeah. But obviously the big ones for me. Were- yeah, Launchpad <laughs> McQuack and uh it, it's McQuack, right? Launchpad McQuack. Yeah, Launchpad McQuack. That's great. He is anything else. His I'm first role that? is a THX eleven thirty eight. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, he was that's... the announcer. He's the announcer in THX. I've I've never seen it. Have you seen it? I have. It, is that a short? It is a short. It's a short. Right? I thought. Well, well they, but they made it into a feature. Oh. Later. Okay. So the, 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 this is the feature with Robert Duvall and Donald Pleasance. Okay. Um. Uh, but but like I said, like he he's in a lot of Lucas stuff, like American Graffiti, and then even like Lucas Arts stuff. Like he's in a lot of the Star Wars video games. He's even in the Secret of Monkey Island stuff. Oh okay. Um, sorry, Mister McGovern, I totally missed that, and that's awesome. Uh, Dante DeAndre played the Spanish soap opera actor. Um, he was Doctor De Moraes in Herbie Goes Bananas last year. Uh, Gary Goatsman played the newscaster, the the male newscaster who's talking about eulogizing uh, the Pat Kramer character, and he mm-hmm. is a producing partner of Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson on most of their films. Um, he yeah, played Melvin's cousin Fred in Melvin and Howard last year. And speaking of Melvin and Howard, Glenn Robards played another newscaster. He is the younger brother of Jason Robards, who plays mm-hmm. Howard in Melvin and Howard. Um, but you've, you, I think uh, we discussed in our Melvin and Howard episode that you, you may have participated in a, uh, a phone conference or something with Gary Goetzman at, at some point, right? Or Gary Goetzman. Yeah, I mean, because he, he was, uh, he, because we uh, produced Hologram for the King uh, with and Tom the Circle, Hanks, right? Or know. something else? Wasn't there two uh, no, Tom Hanks movies in a row? Well, the, there were two, two Tom Hanks movies in a row based on Dave Eggers' novels. Uh, we produced Hologram for the King, but uh, then the, the the other movie was The Circle, oh, also okay. a Dave Eggers novel, but we did not produce. I forgot Hologram for the King was even Dave Eggers. Yeah. Um, Julie Brown played a TV commercial actress. I honestly didn't even spot her in here. Um, I saw her last year for her very brief appearance in Any Which Way You Can, but I did not notice her in this one. Um, she plays Candy in Earth Girls Are Easy. She's the voice of Minerva Mink on Animaniacs, a voice which I had a crush on immediately as soon as that character showed up. And she's also Judy in Shakes the Clown and Miss Stoger in Clueless. Yeah, who's that's the gym teacher that like yells at them when they're all not participating in, I think it was tennis. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Uh, and she's also Lisa in a Goofy movie, which is like the uh, the really popular like blonde girl that's like the Valley Girl character. Um, but those are all the credits I had for this one. Um, I think this movie was fun in places. Um, I honestly would still give this a thumbs up. I think this is worth seeing because of the cast. Yeah. Uh, and because of just the set pieces for, I, I will, there's certain genres of, of movie, any movie where a person's being shrunk, any movie where <laughs> a person is being cloned or something like that, that I will automatically go for just because I'm interested yeah. in that kind of stuff, like sci-fi wise. Um, and this, I think, works on the premise that, yeah. that it provides. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I would give it a thumbs up just because it has a lot going for it in terms of cast and general concept. Um, and the visual effects are, are great. Could it have been better? 
Totally. Yeah, but I think I think the weakness sorry. is the writing. Um, but the special effects are great. The cast is great. Um, I think they sell all their lines. Uh, it's just that yeah they needed to lean in more to like a cohesive story thread about you know her feeling threatened about her sort of being replaced in her home yeah yeah and then leaned in more to the 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 quirky funness like they do in honey i shrunk the kids you know in terms of all of that stuff because that's that's just what is the reality of being tiny yeah well and see that I feel like the message of this movie, or if there's a message that it's if if the message is about the shrinking role of the housewife or being ignored, and and this is like a physical metaphor for the fact that you're not being ignored, you're being ignored, which I really don't think she was. Yeah, I really I, honestly, feel- like they didn't make uh, her husband shitty enough. <laughs> yeah, her kids uh, ignore her. Yeah, the kids are terrible, but but uh, and I think we had the same complaint in "It's My Turn" that Charles Grodin wasn't a big enough asshole. <laughs> like, yeah, the the point should have been that she didn't belong with this person yeah. and that he was not treating her properly or not respecting her enough. But like, he doesn't expect anything out of her. Like, there's never a scene where he's like demanding something from her that he's not getting. I'm giving this movie a thumbs down. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, uh, I I think what sets this movie apart in 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 a bad way is the fact that she's consistently shrinking and it creates it constantly is creating these new problems yeah uh versus like honey i shrunk the kids they shrink once and they stay that they they they, yeah they stay the same size and they have to deal with all the problems of that size this movie she keeps shrinking and keeps having to deal with new problems facing that size yeah um and and it, it it just i get I don't want to say I get fatigue from it, but have you uh, seen the fifty-seven I, Incredible Shrinking Man? I, I haven't. Although I love the 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 poster or image I've seen of him like battling a spider. Yeah, the like the graphics are really cool. Needed. But in that movie, he's constantly shrinking, and they also don't fix it. <laughs> like he <laughs> shrinks to gone at the end of the story. <laughs> so it's like a psychological horror film. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not like a. Uh, you know a family thinner, comedy you know? thing yeah yeah um yeah so I, I feel like this movie needed something uh a little bit different because the style of it is so interesting because again like everyone's wardrobe is all the pastels so, and yeah yeah everything's so like wonderfully lit and like uh, everything i don't know it there's a lot of aspects of the movie i did like but i i found myself uh, bored um uh, I didn't. I don't think I laughed very much at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I. I. And that. And that's. I think I laughed more in nine to five. It, than it, I did it in this. also. And, it seems repetitive that we have heard, all like pr- presumed dead more than once, on the way yeah. to her being alive at the end of the film. I also feel like I could have done entirely without a super intelligent gorilla. Like I don't understand the point. Yeah. Of that. Like, I feel like it would have been actually a more impressive thing if she was able to stand up for herself even when she was tiny and, and deal with the situation completely on her own. Yeah. And be recognized yeah. for her feats. If she was, uh, like, being adaptable and proving herself that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the whole evil organization plot line that never plays out. Like, there's never, like, like 
they were brought to justice or there's an investigation right. like nothing ever happens but like, it reminds me that happens. i want to see the movie downsized <laughs> i still haven't watched that um, oh yeah and that, that and see and that's another movie that that it starts off really great and then it it meanders away about what it was supposed to be about what was it supposed what to be I th- about i still haven't seen it i what i thought it was about was about a guy who gets shrunk uh, but his wife backs out and now he's alone in this shrunk world with all these shrunk people and dealing with the, like the fact that, that his wife left him. Uh, and it does deal with that, but then it gets into like really weird, like shrinking people like in third world countries as a means of like gang violence. And then there's this, so weird that's closer to what of, the plan is here of the evil group uh, that they want to shrink uh, people and take advantage of them. Yeah, a little bit, but then it gets into this whole like cult. There's like a cult of people who are like gonna bury themselves into the ground. <laughs> it, 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 the movie goes all over the place, and Matt Damon's character is very weak and ineffectual, and that's the character. Yeah. But in the end, like I know you don't really like that change. when the character's not choosing what they do the whole time, and and things are just happening yeah. to them. That always bothers you. Um, but. Uh, I'm sorry. I keep. I know we're talking about downsizing and not this. Sure, movie, sure, sure. The the best part of downsizing is Christoph Waltz and Udo Kier play a gay couple. Oh my god! And, <laughs> I love that are, casting. They are magnificent together. <laughs> oh my god! Well, I know what I'm watching tonight instead of the <laughs> '80s movies that I'm supposed to watch to review on this podcast. Uh, that 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 is the the saving grace of that movie is their relationship. <laughs> oh my god! I can't. If you told me to think of a better combination, like if you gave me either one of their names and you gave me infinity time to think of a partner, that's who I would have come up with. Because <laughs> they're both the best movie Nazis in the world. Yeah. I kept trying to think of like, when I first saw like the, the name of the evil organization in uh, in this movie, Incredible Shrinking Woman, they kept, you know, the organization of world management. For some reason I thought, oh, that's funny because it's like own but then, but then I thought, wait, no, it's not. It's management. It's OM. Yeah, that's, that's not that's not even a clever acronym. Well, isn't it though? It's it's supposed to be like the the NWO, the world, the New World Order, like the whole. Oh, is that is that is the uh, I, I, that I thought it was that, like that's... a parody of the of the NWO, like the whole cabal of deep state New World Order stuff. Oh well, then if that's if that's what they were going for, then I missed it, and that's me. But I, I can see how that would have worked better if it was the, the organization for world. Uh, what's That's the problem is you get to the letter N and you're like, what's a world yeah. for domination or something that starts with N? But yeah, either way, um, I think it's fun. Uh, I think the visual effects are great, but the writing is not, it doesn't hold up completely. Um, we have two thumbs up and a thumb down. Letterbox, what do you think of Jess? I have it... Um... <laughs> after my thumbs down it's third on the list for the year yeah. i mean granted there's only nine there's only nine on the list but it's uh it's after fear no evil but it was above underground aces for me which i think i gave a thumbs up for but it was funnier yeah but this one had things in it that i liked like the um you know the big props and all and all of that stuff mm-hmm. i just the the story needed a little bit more for me yeah richard uh i have it the same uh it's in my third position uh, just below Fear No Evil, but mine is above Windwalker because uh, I have Windwalker above Underground Aces. 
I actually have it in second place. Um, it's just under Scanners and just above Fear No Evil because if I were going to watch one of those again right now, it would probably be The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Just well, that is incorrect. It would yeah, definitely. I would definitely watch Fear No Evil. <laughs> I just really like the performances from The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and Fear No Evil is a little bit sloppier. And uh, yeah, but I think it's more fun. Maybe, maybe I think it's more that fun. they're both pretty fun. I don't know. There's just it's a little meh. It's a little meh. That, that, that's the best way to describe it. That's fair. <laughs> I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. Vintage Video will always be free to listen to, but if it's worth it to you, a donation as small as a buck a month is greatly appreciated. We've been doing our show for over a year now. This is our 177th episode. Our $5 patron tier includes a shout-out on the show, a monthly exclusive episode reviewing a title from the 70s, and a hand in choosing each month's film. As an added bonus, this year we're starting to fill in some of the blanks from last year with about 20 minisodes reviewing titles that didn't make the cut from 1980. We've recorded 13 50th anniversary episodes so far, and for March, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following seven titles. Andromeda Strain, a sci-fi thriller adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel about a space-born organism and the team of scientists charged with protecting the world from its consequences, it was directed by Robert Wise and stars Arthur Hill, James Olsen, and Kate Reed. The Barefoot Executive, from the director of Night of the Juggler and Underground Aces, comes a Disney film about a chimpanzee in charge of programming for a television network. It stars Kurt Russell, Wally Cox, Heather North, and John Ritter in his feature film debut. The Beguiled, Don Siegel's Southern Gothic about an injured Union soldier imprisoned in a Confederate girls' boarding school. It stars Clint Eastwood, Geraldine Page, and Elizabeth Hartman. Get Carter, a British crime drama from the director of Flash Gordon about a London gangster who returns home to investigate the mysterious death of his brother. It stars Michael Caine, Ian Hendry, Britt Eklund, John Osborne, and Brian Mosley. THX 1138, George Lucas's first sci-fi feature about a dystopian future controlled by robots and emotion-suppressing medication. Adapted from Lucas's earlier short film, it stars Robert Duvall and Donald Pleasance. Vanishing Point, Richard C. Serafian's action film about an ex-cop leading a high-speed chase across the country, loaded on uppers. It stars Barry Newman, Cleavon Little, and Dean Jagger. When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, the third installment of Hammer Films' Cave Girl series after One Million Years B.C. and Prehistoric Women, it stars Victoria Vetri, Robin Hodden, Patrick Allen, Imogen Hassel, and a bunch of stop-motion animated dinosaurs. Each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this coming March. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can find our campaign at patreon.com slash vintagevideopodcast. If not, I hope you'll at least do us the honor of continuing to listen. We also have a Discord now. You can find the button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also, search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Cabo Blanco, which IMDb describes like so. In 1948, an assortment of shady characters are searching for Nazi loot, sunken off the coast of Peru. We leave you now with a trailer for Cabo Blanco. 
The hunt is on. International adventurers descend on a small town on the coast of Peru. They seek the fabled sunken treasure of the ship called the Brittany. The time is 1948. The town is Cabo Blanco. What was on the Brittany? $22 million. $22 million? Does not even come close. The Germans stole it. You can start diving for the ship again. The thing's broken all over the place. A classic answer me, William. What the hell's going on? Lewis! Lewis! For Christ's sake, answer Lou, William! Where is the Brittany? Give her yours. Gif is the kind of man that doesn't involve himself. What would happen if they sent you back to the States? The gas chamber. The openings. Why did you come to Cabo Blanco? I killed somebody. Who is he, Git? He's a Nazi that can run fast. And around here, he has enough clout to make the rules in Cabo Blanco. Tell Toretto to close Cabo Blanco. Nobody in, nobody out. Dorfas a shooting license. Before the night is over, you could be dead. Where were you all day? Why? Because I sold you out. Why didn't you tell me where the Brittany is a long time ago? Things would have been so much simpler. What is on that ship? This said to be a fragment of the true cross. Golden censer, tears of pearl. Inventory dazzling. Wasting. No more tricks, no more jokes. Where? Not with that pointed at me. Here! Look now, you don't think I'd try this on my own, do you? You're a dead man, Gift. Starring Charles Bronson, Jason Robards, Dominique Sander, and Fernando Rey. Cabo Blanco, where adventure begins.